as we hop into this text today, I want to just have a word of introduction regarding my, my track. I desire to communicate to all of you. Uh, I'm not desiring to communicate to anybody outside this room, though sermons are recorded uh, to be listened to at a later date if someone's not here. And so <clears throat> I'm trying yet again to, to take pains to go over what's being said in, in the sermons and help us really have categories and connect dots, which means that adds time to my sermons or it shortens the length of the things that I can cover because I am, as you do on your smartphone, clicking on a word and expanding out what I say about that word so that it may be understandable. <clears throat> and so I desire for this particular sermon to be one of, of lots of doctrinal instruction and application. And so by and large, <clears throat> I want you to be able in your minds to distinguish between what the scriptures teach explicitly and what we are supposed to take from that in terms of its instruction as it relates to all of the scripture, normally called doctrinal instruction, and then also what is the personal application of these things. I, I, I pray and hope that you are able to filter sermons this way, for this is what an exegetical sermon is. And so today we're just going to start and really focus deep on this verse 23 through 25, a very short little section about what has um, happened in Paul. Paul, or Saul as he's called at this point, is, is radically converted himself, sees the Lord Jesus uh, on the road to Damascus, and has his eyes uh, unveiled. The, the spiritual blindness that he has is, is removed, and he sees the glory of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And here, he, as you'll notice in verse 22, right before we're into our text, in Damascus, stays with the disciples some time, and what he is finding, what he is doing is indicated by he's being strengthened to confound the Jews and prove that Jesus is the Christ. This is his ongoing actions in time, so that in verse 23, although like my translation, we'll put an editorial break here. You're supposed to read these two together. And verse 23 says, and as many days have passed, well, well, the assumption and the thing that Luke's trying to communicate to you is that this is what he was doing while those many days were passing. He's spending his time in private and in public disputing with the Christians and the Jews. And in this, one of the fruits of his ministry is that people who disagree with him want to kill him. Congratulations. Fruitful ministry for you, Paul. This is already what was prophesied about him earlier. He will have to suffer many things Ananias, who healed him, was told. So let us focus on this for a minute. Verse 24b, or halfway through 24, tells us what it is that there was planned to do. How were they going to 
catch him to kill him. What, what would they do? So they uh, put guards or stationed people to watch night and day, 24-hour cycle, in order to know how it is they were to kill him or to, to capture him. Now, we don't know, we're not told by Luke in how many gates there were around the city, and neither are we told how many people, but rightly so, all the gates, usually a city would have one, at least a couple, if not four, one on each side of the city. Um, each of these are guarded night and day. That's a long shift. I, I, I guarantee you there's more than one person taking a shift at each gate. <clears throat> and so this, as is reasonable, is to say there is a really strong effort by the Jews at this time in their secret plot to destroy Paul. It was not a light or easy matter. It is one that they wanted to accomplish with some vigor. So what happens? Well, <clears throat> what we need to see is in verse 24, the first part of it says, but their plot became known to Saul. What is going on here is the Lord himself has other plans for Saul. He had already prophesied it. And therefore, what we say is this is a work of God's providence. Um, our kids could, well, maybe they could say very loudly, what are, what are God's works of providence, Elias? And... Good boy. Okay, so providence is God's rulership of all things, all man's actions, all man's thoughts. It's his meticulous, wise, holy, powerful, uh, powerfully active engagement in all that takes place, both for good and for ill. It is his eternal counsel whereby he governs the actions of history such that his eternal counsel and both internal and external actions all come to pass in history according to his plan. So this is what's happening. And for that, we must understand this is not a mere historical account of things that take place, but Rather, we need to have a spotlight put on thoughts that ought to always occur in our mind. When, when we read this text, we should immediately think God's providence. You shouldn't need me to tell you this. You should think, why did it come to light? That is because God is the sovereign ruler of all things. He knows the reality of our hearts. And so such that this becomes doctrinal instruction for us, I want us to think just for a second about God's providence, secret sins, or the intention of the heart, and the final judgment. Now, M Moses, um, in Psalm 90, has a, a wonderful... Um, has a wonderful statement that applies to our text here. God himself brings to light the wicked whispers of men who plot against his people. So that in Psalm 90, 
uh, verse 8, you have Moses saying, You have set our, our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. There is no hiding sin from before God. We should be foolish to think such a thing. It only remains secret or hidden or undercover from other people who can't see into the depths of who you are. But all sin will be accounted for. The Lord may desire for certain sins to remain hidden from all people for your entire life, but there is scheduled a day on which every secret sin will come into the light because every one of us has an appointed time before the judgment seat of Christ, such that we stand or fall, and if we stand in our own righteousness, that day will be a tremendously fearful day because all of us by definition, are wicked. The nicest, kindest person who falls so little in our eyes is but pond scum and rotting. We are horrendously terrible from our desires onto our actions. And there is not, uh, there is not a paper long enough or scribes diligent enough who could work tirelessly to write down all of our sins that occur in a single year, let alone in our whole lifetime. We will stand before God one day and everything that is secret, hidden before men, will be unveiled before God. This is why we need the righteousness of God, which comes from outside of us. None of us is righteous before God. We need the righteousness of another. That is the righteousness of God, which is revealed in Christ Jesus. It is, <clears throat> there's, a, there's a question in my mind that I, I hope that you can answer. <clears throat> we often talk about faith in Christ and we have a hard time sometimes filling in the rest of the sentence as, as to faith in Christ to do what? You need to believe in Christ to be saved. Believe in Christ to do what to be saved? What, what is he believed in for us to do? What, what is his accomplishment for us? And the answer for us, the central message of the gospel is he provides to us the righteousness that God requires of us. And he is also the one who grants us full forgiveness of sins because we utterly fail to lovingly obey God from the heart, from the soul, in our mind, and with all of our strength. All of those who trust in themselves, Jesus has prophesied in the gospel what he will say to the wicked on the day of judgment. What is that? Matthew 25, 41. From the very mouth of Jesus, the wicked will hear, depart from me, 
you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This is the terrible fate of the wicked. Unless we be tremendously perplexed and in fear ourselves, we must remember that this in Christ is not our fate at all. I consulted um, one of the systematics that I, I, I love, uh, Wilhelmus Abrockel, the second Dutch Reformation. He is quintessential, um, a Dutch Reformed theologian, and he's very, um, very, very pastoral. Um, and, and so I thought this quote concerning our secret sins that we can all think of readily, that we confess even in a service today, that we need to be reminded about who Christ is to us concerning the final judgment when all of our sins are forgiven. He says this, I quote a short paragraph. He, that is Christ, will then confess us before the angels and all men that he loves you, that as your surety, he has atoned for all of your sins and that you are an heir of eternal life. Sorry. Oh, how great will your glory be then when you will be acknowledged by that great judge as his bride and he, when he will usher you into the house of his father where there will be nothing but light, glory, holiness, and joy. Therefore, lift up your head out of all your sorrows and rejoice. The final judgment for us will be one where all of our sins are declared and seen as handled in Christ Jesus. A glorious reality for us as believers. Unlike those who are plotting and schemes here. Now, as, as we also look in our text, I want to cast you to cast your eyes on verse 25, 24 and 25. We see that <clears throat> there's two secret plots by two different groups of people, and it provides for us a striking similarity that is also strikingly different. It's both similar and a contrast simultaneously. In both cases, the Jews on the one hand have a secret plot and whispering which comes between those who are going to be guarding the gate and so forth. And in Luke, that is presented by uh, the Holy Spirit as a sinful action. And then the disciples, unbeknownst to those other people, in quiet and in secret, whisper to one another and plot themselves. And yet it is presented as the complete opposite. That is righteous coordination. It is righteous communication and, and a plan. Um, yet they share the same thing in common. They both whisper to one another and make a secret plot that they, can't, uh, that they intend to carry out. <clears throat> so we should ask the question, um, what is it? that makes one action or the group, the action of one group, which is the same as the other group, one sinful and one not. 
They're both secret actions and coordinations of a plan. What makes it sinful and what makes it righteous? We can answer this very simply by saying it's the direction. You can say the intention, but it's the direction of the desire. It's the direction of the plan. The motions of the heart, it's your intentions, your desires. The motions of the heart from the Jews were aimed at and desirous of breaking God's law, specifically the sixth command, you shall not murder. Which Cain did. did. Jesus, as the greater Moses, you shall know in the most famous sermon ever preached on the planet, in Matthew chapter 5, 21 through 22, said these words as a faithful interpreter of the law. He's not changing the law, not removing one dot or tittle, but rather he is showing the true meaning of the sixth commandment when he says, you have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder. And, uh, oh, excuse me. And that it was said of those of old. Uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> I, I lost my place here. You have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. In other words, God's law, rightly interpreted, means that God commands us to have perfect love for our neighbor by never having a single ember of anger burn toward our neighbor. The Son of God never experienced an ounce of that kind of anger. Never flickered in his heart at all. Sinful anger is the intense hatred or intense hastiness to do evil to your neighbor. This is what arises. You want to do wrong, and it happens in a moment. This is why anger is listed in Galatians 5.20 as a work of the flesh, which is the Bible's way of saying a, a, a motion of original sin, as the confessions will say, or it is your sinful nature um, and that sinful nature producing a desire. Okay, It is a desire from your sinful nature, can never be called good, can never be transformed into righteousness. It is, from the moment it's had, sin. Further, James tells us that this kind of anger from our fallen nature cannot yield goodness of any kind. James 1.20 says, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. In other words, The righteousness of God in Jesus Christ never was the anger of man. So his braiding a cord of a whip through a cord and driving out sinners in the temple was not what James nor Galatians nor Jesus himself teaches. That's sinful anger. There is a righteous anger that's 
tied to sin and sinners that is appropriate. As Psalm 139 says that um, the righteous person hates evildoers with a perfect hatred. Now, let me tell you a personal anecdote so you know that you're not the only ones who experience the condemnation of sin in this way. And and I don't tell a lot of personal anecdotes, so this will be one that you can note. Um, If I were not utterly convinced that Christ could deal with and has dealt with all of my indwelling sin now then I would be absolutely crushed by the truth that I just proclaimed to you concerning anger. I remember when my oldest, Freddie, was a very young infant, and we as parents were in Kentucky learning how difficult it is and all the work it takes for our children to be um, members of the congregation and for us to be in deep fellowship as a family with the church. And on one particular night, we were at our small group with some uh, with with the Christians in our in our church. And Freddie was what you call a colicky baby, and he cried all the time, and he never slept. And so we were good at taking turns. And so I, um, when uh, in the middle of of uh, he was having a crying attack, I decided in a spirit of gentleness and of righteousness and. Uh, of service. I'm like, I'm going to go outside and I'm going to bounce him for however long it takes. But then again and again, all my attempts were thwarted and he would not settle down and not stop crying. And in an instant, my anger burned in violence, had thoughts of harm instantly, though all of my intention was the complete opposite way. And at that moment, I realized through the sanctification that happens as a, as a parent how deeply sinful I was in, in my disposition, not to a good fatherly discipline, but rather to sinful anger. I, I remember being absolutely undone by this. And really, in some sense, I've never been the same since because it, it hit me how my desires were so corrupt from the foundation up to the top of my actions. And so in application, the heart's intention is the thing that I at that time confessed with great remorse as evil to my small group. And they did something that you and I should never ever do okay don't ever do this they in essence said trying to alleviate my conscience oh don't worry we all sin but the godly conscience can never be satisfied by recognizing you're in the same boat as every other sinner that boat has a massive hole and it sinks down to destruction. Sinners tell themselves, oh, you're all good. We all do that. It's okay. No, we as Christians need to not heal each other's wounds lightly. We need to point ourselves to where forgiveness actually is. Not in man's rhetoric, but in the word of Christ. 
It is on the basis of our union with Christ and by the spirit and faith that we call upon the father as beloved children who have in a moment disobeyed, had heart desires that do not please God and do not come from God or glorify his name. Their sin. This is how Jesus teaches us that God deals with us as sons. Luke eleven four. you all should know the Lord's Prayer. Father, forgive us our sins. Let us therefore not be physicians who heal lightly, but give the truth in love. Is it not better to say something like, brother, you have sinned grievously. You've broken God's law and you've displeased the Lord. But brother, you have a sin bearer. You have Jesus the Christ who has purchased your forgiveness. And in him, you are a son of God. Approach your father through Christ. He will not count your sin to you. He will indeed assure you of your sonship. He will give you rest in your conscience. He will restore you to the joy of your salvation, which is full and sweet fellowship and communion with God. And then, after giving a word like that, then say, and pray with me, sinner. And and ask them to confess their sin to the Lord and pray with them. This is the way that we handle all sin. All sin is to confess and turn to the Lord. If you're wondering how we ended up there, it's because there is sinful plots that that we don't we are not unlike those who are led to kill others. It just starts it starts deeper. We need to handle those things in ourselves. Now, there's also on the other hand an impulse to a secret plot that is a righteous one. And we need to think about this for a second. In verse 25, the disciples whisper together. They don't let anybody know and except themselves. And what they do is they find an opening in the wall that they can fit a, a basket and Paul or Saul in and they lower him down so he can flee away to a different place. The amazing part is it's the same command that's in view here. Same exact command that's in view. What is in view in our text is not that they desire to break the sixth command. They plot together as disciples to keep the sixth command. You'll remember when we were confessing the catechism, number 73, about what is required in the sixth command, thou shalt not kill, is that it requires all lawful endeavors to preserve our own life and the life of others, in this case, namely Saul. The Jews were secretly collaborating because they had no claim to a capital crime that would lead Saul to death 
They just had his witness about the truth about Jesus. All they had was the righteous declaration of the gospel. They certainly did not have two to three independent lines of witness to prove beyond a shadow of the doubt, a doubt that Paul had broken, uh, broken a cr- uh, one of his standards and committed a crime worthy of death. They had nothing of the sort. <laughs> and that's why they have to go in secret and plot against the people of God. You should know that God's moral standard errs on the side of protecting the innocent so that even at times the wicked secretly can go free, though that is not the case here. And and I hear myself because you, you can think about the situation whereby you're the disciples. I think some of us might be inclined to say, well, why didn't they go to the authorities? They, they don't have a lawful claim. Isn't the appropriate thing to do to go say, hey, there's, there's wicked people that need to be shut down. We're doing things lawfully here, proclaiming Christ. Well, why not go to the authorities and have this request made known. Why flee instead? (laughs) And the answer is simple. If you've been following along with the text, Paul of all people knows that, (laughs) that the authorities in Damascus, he had papers from the chief priests and he knew they were trumped up phony charges that the Damascus synagogues would accept. He knew that they had become corrupt and were not to be trusted in doing God's duty given to them to protect life. Romans 13 tells us very clearly what the righteous functioning of governments are. And they knew this would not be the case in this situation. They could not trust this government and Romans 13, verse 3, we learn this. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. And we all immediately say, well, that's not so in our case, and that's not so in their case. That is because Romans 13 tells us what God's design for the government is which the heart of sinful men who get into government places can actually flip the intention of God's design on its head, just as in our society we're trying to flip God's design of man and woman on its head. When governments do this, they become a terror to the Christian, to those who do good, and they approve what is abominable and evil and institute it into law. I believe in the long run, we win down here. However, if governments go bad, then we as Christians need to understand we might have to operate in similar ways, especially in California, to those disciples in this story. We should have a theology that is big enough to allow for fleeing persecution rather than 
becoming a martyr. Not each one of you, uh, not each one of you has to die at the stake if it were to come to that. Martyrdom is a good act, and so is fleeing, especially because here God has other purposes for Paul. He wanted these things to come to light so that he could flee and not die. He had kings to testify before. He had Israel to testify before. He was to be the foundational stone in the church. And therefore, his responsibility was to flee in that moment. We should include for us things that didn't exist in the same manner then and there, which is there are modern forms of of punitive and discriminative tactics yeah, discriminative taxation, which can uh, be lobbied against you to bankrupt you. This is a form of persecution. You can think of uh, when John MacArthur, uh, during the COVID stuff, was being sued repeatedly by for millions of dollars by the government uh, in, in order to get them to shut, shut down. <clears throat> How is it? that we can resist these kinds of injustices and protect our neighbor, just as the impulse of the disciples here is to do. How do we protect our fellow brothers and sisters? That's, that's what's required. Your life is bound up in whether you can eat. And if the government tries to take away your life by taking away your livelihood, well, we have to resist that. And therefore... If a, I I challenge all of us, if a heavy tribulation comes upon a member of this church or somebody in close fellowship with it, that could potentially, by collaborating with their fleeing or resisting tyranny, how many of us, if it cost us our own livelihood, would step in and help them out? If there was... I love this illustration. If there was somebody outside the door and as you walked into church, they, uh, by the force of law, um, took your information so as to put you in a higher tax bracket because they, the government doesn't like Christians and wants to make it very hard to be one such that you don't fellowship with the church anymore. How many of us would be tempted to go, and do something else. How much of us, how, how many risks would we take to protect one another? That is the call that is here in the text. The disciples are willing to make big risks to protect one another. So, in order to become a community like this, what must we be about? In a previous sermon, I said we must be about hospitality because this comes a bunch in Acts. Hospitality is one amazing way to work at this. There's another key ingredient here, uh, which I want to disclose to you. The secret ingredient that makes a community like this, who's willing to risk life and limb for one another, is love. Love for Christ's body. Love for Christ is love for his body. Don't ever separate the two. Love for Christ's body is the key ingredient that 
causes us and, and, and creates the sort of atmosphere that says, I am willing to suffer for you, should that be God's plan. And although in the, uh, in the previous way I talked about a personal way that we could do that through hospitality, there are also ways to do that on an institutional level. There's ways to do that as a church, and you ask how, and I say, church covenants. What? How do you, how do you, how do you uh, facilitate a community of love by a church covenant? Well, I'm glad you asked. Thank you. I will explain to you now how to do this. Let me first say, as a word of qualification, church covenants are like the Constitution of the United States. These kinds of governing documents that encompass us will only become strong and healthy and stabilizing because the people who are governed by them internalize the Constitution or the covenant. That means they they take it to heart and they believe it. If they do not believe in the document or what it says, it is unable to govern the people, no matter what it says, even if it's in force. And so a church covenant, on the other hand, if believed, has the ability to stir us up to love one another because it provides for us a standard of Christian living. You know we were just talking about sin, which is directly related to Christian living. And just as it provides a standard of Christian living, we obviously all agree to have a statement of Christian doctrine. There's things that make you a Christian by believing them and uh, in, in, in trusting them in faith. And there's things that cause you not to be a Christian, things that, that you believe wrongly about God and his gospel. We, when we agree that such a document, a church covenant, is thoroughly biblical, we agree and we adopt it and it becomes uh, for us a short summary of a large book. It becomes a short summary of the primary and essential virtues that we ourselves believe that both we and our church must pursue. We must do these things. And therefore, a church covenant, the reason it can stir us up to love is because it acts like a mirror. It helps us have a clear self-image and go, oh, I need to alter that. That's, that's out of sync with the gospel. That's out of sync with God. And it, it, it's also a really wide mirror that extends from that corner of the room to that corner of the room that gives us a clear picture of who we are as a church and tells us the virtues that we have as well as the flaws that we have. And therefore, it makes us all accountable individually and corporately to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that not why we gather? Is that not why we have been called to Christ? But to live for him and to love him. And to live for him is to love him. And to love him is to live for him. These two things are mutually, are not mutually exclusive. On the other hand, the rejection of accountability to the church or church covenant 
is actually extremely and inherently sinful, as we all know. It would be audacious if someone in the midst of the congregation was living in such a way that they had an occupation, which no one knew about, and then all of a sudden it came to light that this person's occupation and the way that they made their living is by being an abortionist or being a cocaine dealer or uh, being a prostitute. We, principally, in our covenant, should have things that preclude that from being a faithful Christian occupation. It is, by definition, sin against Christ, and if not immediately repented from, then would uh, require us to say, you don't know the gospel. You don't know who Christ Jesus is. He commands you to not live a life of sin, and your whole profession is to destroy your neighbor, it's to rip up a child in the womb. It is, to, um, it is to cause the covenant of marriage to be broken. It's for somebody to absolutely wreck their life and destroy their body and cause them to be thrown into hell. If they follow after you, you must repent. Our church constitution and covenant should do this while at the same time acknowledging that less egregious sins that we all struggle with, self-control, filthy language, like me earlier, outbursts of anger, even though no one saw it on the outside of me, I still look like a happy dad bouncing my baby. And in some sense, I'm just a mixed bag. I'm feeling a sinful anger that I need to repent of in the moment that no one else can see. And sins like irritability, 1 Corinthians 13. Love is not irritable. It's not like being around somebody who's agitated. It's a very high calling. These common sins are matters of, if they are reflected well in our, our document, our church-wide covenant that we agree to personally and corporately, it becomes an area of church-wide correction, godly correction. It, it, it becomes an area of encouragement. Brother, we've said we're going to walk with Christ this way. You're, you're not doing that. Let's, let's walk together as we've agreed is right in the sight of God. It, 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 it is a an area of regular and minor discipline whereby husband and wives um, in the church can say, honey, we've agreed to this. This is what the Bible teaches, right? Like, cannot sin in this way. You must confess that and you must repent. It becomes a help in training in righteousness and defines who we are. <clears throat> I know that some of you uh, all of you at some point a few years ago got a copy of this. I still have a couple. I need to make more. If you have lost yours, your church covenant, or you need another one, um, just get with me. I can, I can send it to you. But I encourage you to remember the things which we've agreed to very much, especially because soon we'll call some new members into the fellowship. Um, but we must remember regularly 
what it is we are to be about, what, it, what virtue looks like, what godliness looks like. And this will help us to say the hard thing to one another, as well as to, to do that gently and in love. And this is what brings a community tighter together. And this is the same exact thing that we just define as love. It's, it's just love for our neighbor. And so without uh, with looking at the time, I won't expand on this anymore. But what I will just call you to is let us purpose to, in our every action, both seen and unseen, act with love in a way towards each other that builds one another up and protects this body in the love which we must be about, the love of Christ for his people. And to that call, let us pray.